0: Now, for those of you who've been here for uh, this series, you'll know I've been using a rather spurious link with film titles uh, to uh, title the sermons, and this week's no different. Uh, It's called Gold Rush uh, Part 1, because... uh, Tom's going to look at the second half of this chapter. And that's, a, for those of you who know, that's a Charlie Chaplin film. And it's, actually, there's probably a little more link between the actual title and the nature of the film and this chapter. It's, it's about a lone prospector uh, who's ridiculed but who has uh, great courage and uh, who does what he does uh, all, also for uh, love. So there are one or two connections, uh, uh, tentative uh, connections between the title ...and uh, this uh, first half of the chapter. But um, what I want you to do with me uh, this morning for a little while... ...is look beyond uh, some of the cultural incompatibilities... uh, ...that we find here in this ancient Near East narrative... ...and uh, look beyond that and see... uh, ...or or look into that and unpack it a little bit... ...and also see uh, some of the unchanging spiritual realities... ...that are very clear and very evident in this chapter... And uh, are applicable to our lives um, because it deals with characteristics and it deals with uh, people and their relationship with God. And uh, that's uh, what we do. Uh, We are people and we're in relationship with God or possibly not. Uh, And I hope that you will be, if you're not today in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ by faith, I hope you will uh, be utterly and completely miserably convicted today to come to know Jesus Christ, uh, who is life and who is joy and who is uh, fulfillment. So I want to look at the characters and different aspects of their characters today and apply them uh, in our own lives. Spirits will be challenged to do so. And uh, it's a great story. It's a tremendous story, a great narrative story. And what we we look at firstly, we're going to look at firstly is the pride of the king. So, you've got King Nebuchadnezzar. And whatever else is happening in his life, I've distilled it down to this one thing, the spiritual pride that is in his life. And it's kind of highlighted, I guess, in verse 15, where he says, you know, it's not just about power. It's not just about his position. It's about him and God. And he says, listen, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So there is clearly a spiritual pride in Nebuchadnezzar that is motivating and driving and intoxicating him to do what he's doing. There's no doubt he's a clever bloke. He's clever and he's uh, wise and uh, he is uh, where he is for a reason. Uh, but he channels that intelligence and that wisdom and that gifts that he has, he channels it because of his spiritual pride to uh, maintain his own position and to allow his self-obsession to uh, continue and to develop. He's blind. We've seen already that he's blind to God. You know, God has spoken to him very clearly, Uh, through Daniel in the previous chapter, where uh, Daniel, as he attributed to God the ability to to know his dream and to interpret it, uh, he has known and seen the living God doing this amazing miracle in his life, telling him about his own position that God has placed him there and the future positions of kingdoms after him. But as we saw last week, it's not about evidence for him. There was plenty of evidence there about the reality of God. It's about his heart. And that's often true, isn't it? It's not about evidence that people don't come at faith. It's, it's, it's ultimately because there's rebellious pride in our hearts against God. And, you know, we might often think that, you know, we're good people and we, we don't do much wrong and we, we don't feel like sinners. Uh, but yet, often it will be a spiritual pride, a rebellion. That keeps us from the living God. That certainly was the key case at this point with uh, Nebuchadnezzar, because what he seems to do is he manipulates the dream from the, that we looked at in the previous chapter to his own ends. So, God had spoken about what was going to happen in the future uh, and made clear the, the variety of kingdoms and how these kingdoms would become less powerful and more divided, but his was the kingdom of gold, his was the head. And he took that and he said, great. Well, I'm going to make sure that this kingdom, I'm not going to fall into the mistakes of these future kingdoms that are going to be divided and are going to be weakened because of that. He took this dream, and he saw the future weakness that God had spoken about, and he tried to develop a strategy that would allow that not to happen in his own time. And he did that with a a strategy to control the many different peoples and tribes and nations that were under his sovereign control uh, as uh, this great uh, world leader. Uh, So he did it through cult worship. This was how he would maintain an element of control over the people. He would uh, create this amazing idol, 90 feet high, gold, at least gold-plated, gold and nine feet wide. So it's kind of about three meters. So it's actually a very ugly kind of looking thing. It's, it's not that big, uh, not that wide, but it's very, very high. It's probably about the height of this church. Would they say that's 90 feet high? Maybe a bit more than that. It's, at, it's just under half of the height of the Scott Monument. Okay, the Scott Monument's 200 feet. So it's just under half the height of the Scott Monument, which is probably just a bit less than the height of this church that Uh, So it's it's quite narrow, but it's very high. It was on the plains of Judah. You could see it from miles around. And it was a sign of his power, a sign of his glory, a sign of his control. And he brought all the important people together, all the civil servants from all the different places, and he said to them, look, you get your guys to bow down when the music plays. And it would seem that the variety of instruments that are used uh, is reflecting the fact that he's taking... Uh, different uh, instruments from the different nations and the different cultures. So he's been very reasonable. He's involved, It's kind of uh, religious syncretism, reasonable syncretism. He says, look, all I'm asking is when the band plays that you bow down and worship this image of gold. Whether it's an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself, uh, we don't know, but it was certainly an image uh, that was to reflect his power and his glory culturally inclusive, with all these different instruments and the bands playing, and it doesn't say anything about not carrying on worshiping your own gods. You can do that in your own time, but when the music sounds, when the band plays, you bow down to this god, to this idol, as a declaration of my authority and my control over this whole kingdom. And of course, with it went a malevolent fear. If you don't, you're going to get thrown into fire. So, just a gentle kind of coercion if you don't do it. It was kind of the big brother mentality, wasn't it? Because what he was doing, he was saying, you need to do this, and I'll have people out there making sure that that happens. He was developing loyalty among kind of spies who would want to go and clipe to the king and who would show their loyalty. And so, he was building this sense of loyalty. It's that kind of big brother mentality. It's 8.45 in the morning. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have not bowed down to the idol. It's that kind of thing, isn't it? That they come, and uh, he wants to tell people, uh, wants people to tell if uh, they're not worshiping in the right way. And this is clearly an outworking of his pride. He is, having seen the previous dream where God was clearly revealed as the sovereign God of all gods, he's saying, no, I'm divine. I'm in control. And I will say what I will say, and what God is going to stop me then? He is number one. He is self-obsessed. He has spiritual pride, which is not broken. Now, um, I don't suppose any of us have either the opportunity or the uh, extreme pride to act uh, in uh, a similar way to Nebuchadnezzar. But it's spiritual pride, however extreme or however reasonable, it's spiritual pride that keeps us from bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's spiritual pride that says, I don't need God today. I don't need to worship today. I don't need rescued by God and by His grace. That's not for me. I don't need his l- morality. I certainly don't need his lordship. I am at the center of my life and I'll make the decisions. And that is a spiritual pride that keeps us from bowing the knee to the living God. And it may be that there are many things not as crude as the idols that uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, was putting into place or the idols that were spoken about in the psalm we were singing. But there are, as we know, there are many things that we can put in the place of God and his lordship that keep us from uh, serving and following and bowing the knee to him. And we can see a kind of societal application as well, can't we? The same pressures that we'll go on to see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego must have had, we can often have also in the society in which we live, where there are many kind of... uh, kind of idols that people say that uh, are are, are significant and that can live alongside uh, your own personal faith. You know, the idol of relativism, relativism, where there's no absolute truth and where there's no uh, fundamental realities, that you can just believe what you choose to believe, a reasonable syncretism, you know? You can choose to worship your Jesus but let other people worship their gods and we can all live together. And we can go and, and move towards that path to heaven with a reasonable syncretism. But woe betide you if you don't accept the dogma of the society in which we live. All dogma is, is banished and banned from our society apart from uh, that dogma itself. The idolatry of uh, the majority rule or the idolatry of... Uh, Pleasure seeking, hedonism, wealth creation, materialism, the infallible, the worship of science as the only answer to anything that there is today—it's all reasonable. And there's a great threat to any non-conformity. There's a quote from Dale Ralph Davis from one of the commentaries that I'm going to put my glasses to read this. The uh, pressure—and this is one of the commentaries uh, on Daniel. that I've been using, that pressure came for conformity. The raft of civil servants are gathered, told, and threatened. Therefore, all the peoples, nations, languages fell down and worshipped just like that. The praise band plays, and uh, the crowd gets its backsides in the air and its noses in the sand and enjoys this job security. They felt they had no choice. They had to do it. There's a tremendous invisible coercion it comes from being among a whole mob of flattened worshippers. And very often we are tempted to uh, idolize other things and indeed our own hearts because of spiritual pride. And we need to remind ourselves that the society in which we live has no place for conviction, spiritual conviction No place for the seditious truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a huge pressure on us to conform all the time. And it's the same pressure that uh, these lads faced. We'll come on to them briefly uh, at the end. Oh, maybe not so. Yeah, briefly. Okay. The second second characteristic that I want to mention is the jealousy of the astrologers. Okay? Uh, Just by looking at these two destructive characteristics, Spiritual pride, but also jealousy of this astrologers. Remember the previous chapter, they had been uh, let off the hook, as it were, uh, from the death penalty. They couldn't interpret the dreams, but Daniel could on their behalf. And uh, Daniel was concerned for them, and he said he didn't want them to die. And obviously, they and and his three friends, they didn't want to die. And so, his dream had given them their position, and they maintained their uh, jobs. But they have this miserable characteristic that reveals itself following Daniel's reprieve for them. They hated him. They hated him, even though he had done this great thing for them, they hated his gifts, they hated his position, they hated his loyal friendships. They probably hated his, loyal, his popularity before King Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, they hated his gods, his God. And they felt greatly threatened by him and by his wisdom and by his knowledge and by his gifts. How is it outworked? Well, it was outworked in the kind of manipulative language that they used, this kind of big brother. There are some Jews that you've set, King Nebuchadnezzar, you've set over the affairs of the province. They pay no attention to you. And uh, they kind of manipulate the situation. It seems very personal against uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. Interestingly, you may have noticed, Daniel's not in this story. There's no Daniel at all in this story. It's just his three mates. It's three friends this time. And maybe that's deliberate. Maybe they chose deliberately not to involve Daniel either because he was too powerful or because he was too popular. And, but they threw through to him, through his friends. And subtly, did you notice, I don't know, you may have noticed, or you may not have, that they, re- re- that they returned back to the Jewish names of the three friends. Uh, rather than use their new Babylonian names with its racial and religious undertones. Uh, These Jews that you've brought who believe in God and whose God is in their names. They're the ones that uh, are seditious and they're the ones that are going to break your kingdom. Jealousy is so hugely destructive, isn't it? Desperately destructive uh, characteristic. Envy. I'm not going to say anything about Uh, envy in the world or, or jealousy towards Christians in the world, but it's a relentlessly ugly reality within the Christian church. Envy and jealousy of one another can reveal itself in so many destructive ways. You put other people in a bad light, you come across as great, and you put them down in a bad light. You manipulate facts about people To make them worse than maybe they are. It's disloyal, isn't it? It's very often self-centered. It maybe goes back to pride. It undermines the whole of our understanding of who we are in Christ and the grace he's given us. That means we shouldn't be envying and jealous of others in our Christian family, in our Christian church. It rebels against the whole concept of being content in Christ. Whether I have or don't have that Christ is with me, and we'll go on to see a little bit about that uh, with the the three lads as we come to a conclusion. It's from the pit of hell. Please remember that. Jealousy and envy will not only destroy the church, but first of all, it will eat into your very soul and heart, and it will destroy you. It's a desperate, desperate characteristic. has no place in our Christian hearts, and if you're jealous and envious and destructive in your thinking towards other Christians, or towards anyone, then please pray for that, Pray against that. Pray that it would be dealt with and taken from you, as we all must do. So there's the jealousy of the astrologers. And then, lastly, we're going to look at the faith of the lads Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, What a dilemma they were in, were they not? A terrible dilemma. They were all of a sudden greatly intimidated by the society around them and by the king's command. They were absolutely in the minority. They were being threatened for their very life. There was probably, if, if they were like Daniel, they were probably very popular. They were decent, respectable, nice guys. And they probably had a lot of friends. And these friends were probably saying, listen, guys, just on this one, you can bow down, but you don't mean it. You can still worship your God. There was possibly a great deal of pressure on them just to conform, keep a low profile, bow quietly. Don't mean it. Compromise. Your God will understand. It's your God that's brought you to this position. Your God's brought you to this important... If you bow down, you're going to wreck it all. You're going to just blow the whole thing out of the water and it's going to be a disaster. Surely God wants you here. You're going to have to be like us in order to win us. And there would have been huge pressure within themselves also. Surely, guys, it's not that black and white. Surely you can still believe in your God and not bow down to this idol. Well, what we see is, along with all that pressure, their courageous, real courageous obedience. It's like last week, it's like, well, the last two weeks, it's Daniel, it's the line in the sand. See, they were a people who knew that uh, the covenant people of God had lost their position in the promised land because of idolatry, because they did not worship God as God and see him as the living God they recognized and saw that Israel's great sin was the sin of idolatry, and on this there could be no compromise. You know, it's like marriage, you know? The faithfulness in marriage. doesn't matter what people will say about how right it might be to break your vows and to, uh, to have an affair or do something because of unreasonableness or because no one will know or because it's okay as long as we feel. We know that absolutely there's a line in the sand that faithfulness must be the core of our marriage. And this, my friends, their attitude, their response in these great verses towards the end of 16 to 18, that's the great miracle of this chapter. I don't know if Tom's here today, but I've just apologized for him. He hasn't got the great miracle next week. I've got the great miracle this week. Okay? We know about the fire next week and what happens and that is an amazing miracle. But this is the great miracle. Their spiritual courage and their strength. Now Samuel Rutherford As quote is saying, if you could bring that quote up. um, You might be able to read it. Uh, You will not get leave to steal quietly into heaven in Christ's company without a conflict or a cost. And that's the reality, isn't it? And there's another one from John Stott on the same passage. Um, Ooh, that's quite a long one. We should not suppose that self-denial is giving up luxuries during Lent, or that my cross is some painful and personal trial. We're always in danger of trivializing Christian discipleship, as it were, no more than uh, uh, adding a thin veneer of piety to an otherwise secular life. Then prick the veneer, and there is the same old pagan underneath. No, becoming and being a Christian involves a change so radical that no imagery can do justice except death and resurrection, dying to the old self, centeredness and rising to a new life of holiness and love. They knew that. They absolutely knew and understood that courageous obedience. On this issue, it was about faithfulness to the living and true God. And we see not only their courageous obedience, but also their personal faith, you know. Uh, The God we serve, our God, our King, it's brilliant, you know. They had uh, a covenant relationship based, as we saw in the previous chapter, on the mercy of God. Covenant love for God, the God they served. They dealt with their pride. There was no jealousy here that was destructive. Uh, Nor, indeed, interestingly, is there any kind of spiritual presumption. I love that this is one of the best couple of verses in the Bible, you know, in terms of doing and knowing God's will when it's not revealed to us. You know, if we're you know, we don't need to defend ourselves. If we're thrown in the blazing furnace, our God is perfectly able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, whatever that involves. But even if he does not, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship. Them. Isn't that great? Isn't it great because they say, you know... They don't say, well, Nebuchadnezzar, we're calling down God's deliverance. Bind the fire, God, bind the fire. They're not saying that. They're not demanding that God releases them. They're not saying that God must act. They're aware that they may not be delivered, they may be martyred at this point, but even if they are, whatever the outcome, they're trusting in this God. Isn't that so unmanipulative? Don't we often, so often pray to God, yes, God, as you will do this, when you do this, as long as you do this, then I will serve. But they're saying, look, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if I get burned alive or if you miraculously deliver us. We're still not going to bow down and serve your gods. They knew that martyrdom would change things as well and would be to God's glory. Faith is in God, not their circumstances. Isn't that a great reality? And so often our closeness to God seems to be related to how good things are going for us. You know, and if things start going bad for us, we immediately think, well, God can't possibly love us. He says, stop loving me. He doesn't love me anymore because he's not giving me what I've asked for, what I want. But our relationship with him is based on his mercy and his grace already clearly written out on the, in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ who has died on the cross, to set us free and to give us life. So there was this personal faith, but also kind of linked into that as they're just a polite rebellion. They're they're good guys, you know, and there's a polite rebellion. There's no evidence that they sought any confrontation. It's not like they went to the very front of all these civil servants and wouldn't bow down in a kind of proud declaration of their faith. It just seems to be that they, they... were politely rebellious. They didn't offer up any petitions. They didn't say how unjust this law was. They didn't defend themselves before the king. They were gracefully subversive, politely seditious, dissentient in the best possible way. And that politeness and that gentleness it was mixed with great courage and great strength, uh, because it was based on their obedience to the mercy of God, who had redeemed them. And you know, all, often in our lives, I would, it's you know we say, "Why well, I, I don't get the opportunity to speak about my faith, and, and people don't know about my faith." As we are obedient, we will find opportunities opening up to us. As we stand gently and politely and seditiously, subversively graceful, we will have opportunities to stand up for Jesus Christ against the current idols of our day as we know Christ, as we are in touch with Christ, or we are founded in Christ. It will be a gentle subversion. We don't want to uh, be aggressive. We don't want to call people names. We don't want to make out we're better than anybody else. It's it's almost a uh, reluctant courage, and I don't mean reluctant because we're ashamed, I just mean reluctant because we're sinners, and we don't want to be uh, in the spotlight but yet, as we gently obey we will find ourselves in that place and I hope that you are able to find yourself in that place as a believer because he will give you the strength and the wisdom uh, through that And just very briefly and lastly, they they spoke uh, very much as one. And we saw that in the previous chapter with Daniel. They were fused together. You know, they were united. They needed each other. Um, It was something they'd obviously decided. They declared, they'd prayed about, and they faced the enemy together. Because they could see together and encouraged each other with a big picture I think we have a desperate need to remind ourselves of this in our Christian lives. That the battle we face, when when you go from here into the workplace tomorrow uh, and into the, the student halls and the homes and the neighborhoods that we're in, that the opposition that we will sometimes face for our faith is something that we need to support and encourage and help each other with and over. That we're united that we're focused, that uh, we're uh, supportive against a common spiritual enemy. Our enemy's not against flesh and blood. Our enemy's against spiritual darkness, against the evil one who wants to fill us with spiritual pride, fill us with an independent spirit, and uh, fill us with uh, a sense of despair. So if you're despairing today as a Christian, can I encourage you to speak to a fellow Christian about that? to ask for prayer and support, to remind yourself that even from this story, it's not the end of the story. It's only half the story. And Tom's got a great passage to do next week. But remind ourselves of some of the spiritual realities, some of the characteristics like jealousy and like spiritual pride that keep us from God. And uh, I pray that if you've come here with just no thought of God really or no thought that anything you would hear or that you would be part of today would have any effect on your life as you leave from here, that that will be taken by him and turned upside down and that you will meet with the living God in a really powerful way because he knows you. As we saw last week, he knows our thoughts and he knows our needs and he knows the forgiveness that he offers and the love and grace that he's freely wanting uh, us to share. Let's bow our heads and pray briefly about that. Lord God, we ask and pray that you would take your word. Uh, There's so much in this chapter. We only really scrape the surface. Uh, We thank you that though it was written thousands of years ago, it remains incredibly relevant because it's your living word, because it's part of your uh, redemptive story, that it speaks of your purposes uh, for your covenant people before Jesus just as uh, we now live in these days post-Jesus Christ. So help us to learn about the dangers of spiritual pride, which says we don't need you, and leaves us prayerless and indiv- individual and independent, or jealousy, which uh, spiritual darkness uh, brings into our hearts and makes us divided and divisive and uh, takes our eye off the perspective of the grace and goodness of Jesus Christ that should be our motivation. And grant, as we pray, in great measure, the courage of the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and greater faith even, and uh, the quiet, subversive, rebellious spirit that should belong to us as Christians um, rather than sometimes the rather spineless establishment principle that we seem to have in our lives about not rocking any boats and not uh, and rather compromising, uh, so help us, Lord, give us that gentle and uh, attractive and uh, almost submissive courage to stand up for Jesus Christ and bless us as we sing uh, together in response to you and to your word. We do pray as a congregation uh, for those who are unwell today also we remember them remember Dina in hospital and uh, Elspeth Crichton Ken's wife we pray for them this time and we also give thanks for Katie and uh, this lovely new life in our congregation Uh, we pray for her and for the family Uh, we pray you'd bless them all and remember too uh, all our uh, expectant mothers in the congregation who are due to give birth very shortly we pray for them also at this anxious time and yet joyful time. So remember us in our worship and in all that we do. And may it be to the glory of God. Amen.